Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In today's episode, I talk with the author of a new Brookings Institution press book on the economic gamble of hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. But first up, John Hudak tells us what's happening in Congress. This week will be a busy one for Congress, having multiple important projects and plans on its plate. The first is an important piece of legislation that many states and localities depend on, and that is highway funding. Highway projects are in high demand across the United States. They create jobs and they help communities connect. And currently, highway funding is running out. It's on Congress either to pass a full bill or at least a patch to carry over funding to continue projects and to start new ones across the country. Right now, Congress is considering multiple proposals, one that would carry funding through the 2016 election and another proposal that would extend funding for as long as six years. It's unclear whether Congress will be able to pass any legislation that will fix this problem before funding runs out uh, sometime later in August. But all eyes are on the transportation committees and the floor of the Senate to start moving this legislation forward. The second big issue will be the Iran deal. The president announced last week, along with Secretary of State John Kerry, that they had reached a deal with Tehran on dealing with uh, nuclear negotiations and coming to a compromise on how to deal with Iran as a nuclear threat. Congress has been notified of the details of the plan and will begin holding hearings this week. One small hearing will focus on the effects of the deal on terrorism funding, while the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will hold a larger hearing inviting Secretary of State John Kerry, Energy Secretary Moniz, and Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, all to discuss what the implications of this deal will be for a variety of areas of public policy in the United States and abroad. As important as the hearings on Capitol Hill will be involving the Iran deal, what's going on behind the scenes will probably be more important as the Obama administration begins reaching out to individual senators trying to build support for this deal in order to get the necessary votes that will allow the president's veto of any legislation that tries to strike down the deal to be overridden. Finally, there will be multiple hearings this week on an important but recently forgotten issue in the federal government, and that is uh, the VA scandal. Multiple hearings will be held across multiple committees in Congress about how VA, the VA has been dealing with some of the problems and backlogs that it experienced over the past several years. And the VA secretary and others will be discussing what improvements the department has made and the progress and plans they have for the future. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Andrew Zimbalist, the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College. Professor Zimbalist has published over 20 books and dozens of articles on comparative economic systems, economic development, and sports economics. He's the author of four Brookings Institution press titles, including Sports Jobs and Taxes, The Economic Impact of Sports Teams and Stadiums, May the Best Team Win, Baseball Economics and Public Policy, National Pastime, How Americans Play Baseball and the Rest of the World Plays Soccer, and most recently in our subject today, Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Welcome to the show, Professor Zimbalist. Thank you. Good to be here. I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed reading this book. Um, it's short but packed with 
great writing, interesting data, and powerful arguments. So thank thank you. you, Fred. That's very kind. How did you get involved in the field uh, of sports economics to begin with, and especially this question of um, mega sporting events? So, as quickly as I possibly can, it, it was a mid-March night in 1990, and I was putting my then 11-year-old son, Jeff, to bed, and he had been spending his entire winter talking about his Little League team and who was going to play what position and how they were going to win. And then this particular night, uh, he said to me, Dad, I don't think I'm going to play Little League this year. And I said, oh, really? How come, Jeff? And he said, well, the major leaguers aren't playing, so I figure that I won't be able to play either. I didn't know a lot about the economics of baseball at the time, but I knew that that wasn't really a problem, that he'd be able to play Little League. And so I explained that to him. And then I reached up to turn off his light, and he said, hey, Dad, you're an economist. You like baseball. Why don't you write a book on the economics of baseball? You just finished your book on Panama. You have nothing else to work on. So I, I, that sort of just amused me when he said it. And I woke up the next morning, and uh, I thought to myself, gee, how often does an 11-year-old tell his father what to do with his life? Uh, and I went, I wasn't, it was a Friday morning, I know, and I wasn't, I wasn't teaching that, that morning, so I went to the bowels of the Smith College Library and started looking for books and information on the economics of, of baseball. And... Um, I discovered two things. One is that baseball had an antitrust exemption dating back to 1922. Mm -hmm. And the other is that really nobody had written anything about it. So I went back to my office and on a lark, just thinking, I'm doing this because my son told me to do it and I'll spend three hours of my life doing it. I, I wrote a book proposal uh, that sort of combined those elements and I uh, sent it to Basic Books, which was a cross between and is a cross between popular and academic pre uh, publishing. And I, I had heard of a, a very good editor there, so I sent it to that editor. I never expected to hear again from them because why would they publish a book by me on a subject that I wasn't equipped to write about? Uh, but he called me back in about three weeks and he said, This is wonderful, we love it, we'll give you a $30,000 advance, write the book. So it took me about a year and a half, I wrote the book and called Baseball in Billions, and it became a business bestseller and got wonderful reviews, and I all of a sudden became the guy. I was the guy who studied sports economics. I started getting asked to be an expert in litigations and to speak and to write other things and to teach courses about it. So um, the area of sports economics kind of took over. And then um, in, in, in the mid-1990s, uh, there, there was a period in, 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 in sports where every team wanted to have a new stadium. And in, in Baltimore in 1992, they built Camden Yards. And it was, tr it, was, it was a new model that Larry Lucchino had introduced, which is back in the 60s, uh, so a lot of stadiums were built in the suburbs, as congruent with the automobilization and the suburbanization right. of, of America. Uh, and everybody was saying, oh, the rich people moved to the suburbs, let's put the stadiums there. So they forgot about the downtown historical stadiums and they built these cookie cutter stadiums in the suburbs. Larry, Larry Lucchino comes along, he was the CEO of the Orioles at the time, and says, you know, we've got the stadium in North Baltimore by Johns Hopkins. It doesn't have any highway arteries near it. Uh, it doesn't have any parking lots. It's way to the north. Why don't we put a stadium downtown, southern part of Baltimore, be closer to DC, close to the highway artery. Uh, we get the businessmen to come after the, after the work day, have, have meals there, have drinks there. Uh, once we get them into the ballpark, our signage will be worth more because it's a higher priced clientele. So they did that and they were very successful and they, they were able also to bring the, the, DC, the DC crowd right. up to Baltimore. They brought me a, up there for a, 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 a while. A, a time when the senators or the nationals didn't exist. Right. 
Um, so everybody said, my God, uh, this is great. We have to do it too. And not only was there that kind of conceptual appreciation of what the Orioles had done, but also that you're competing with the Orioles. So how, how are the Red Sox or how are the Yankees or how are the Blue Jays, how are they going to compete with the Orioles if Peter Angelos, who, run, who owns the Orioles, all of a sudden has an extra $40 million in his pocket? So everybody wanted new stadiums. And, and of course, uh, what, what baseball teams were able to do is basically say to cities, or many of them were able to do is, uh, we want you to build us a new ballpark or we're going somewhere else. Right. Um, and cities uh, confronting that kind of monopoly shortage and monopoly power basically said yes. I mean, there were some, some negotiating and bargaining and some differences in the way it worked out financially. But so cities started spending hundreds of millions of dollars building new ballparks for these rich baseball team owners and, and other sports as well. And um, so economists started to study this. And Roger Knoll and I um, decided we wanted to do a book on this. Uh, and Roger was, was a fellow at Brookings at the time, and so Brookings hosted a conference that we, we, uh, we put together, and then we, we published our book. And um, it was Sports, Jobs, and Taxes, basically about the financing of and the economic impact of sports teams on, on cities, which was a very critical look in saying that you know, this, maybe you want to do it for cultural reasons, maybe it's exciting, maybe it... It enhances cities' self uh, self identity. It enhances a sense of community. Maybe it does all those things, but if it does that, then sell it on those terms. Don't go to the public and say it's going to create jobs and it's going to create income because it doesn't do those things. Right. That at least at least the stadium or an arena by itself doesn't do those things. Um, so that sort of launched me into that general area. And uh, in 2003, I was approached by the CEO of the Schubert Organization in New York. Schubert Organization owns many Broadway, Broadway okay. theaters and produces a large share of the Broadway plays. Jerry Schoenfeld is the guy's name. He, he called me down to the city, said, I want to talk to you about a development here in New York. And the development he wanted to talk about was his plan to bring the Olympics to New York for 2012. Uh, and part of the idea that Jerry was upset about was that they were going to put a stadium um, between 31st and 33rd Street and 10th and 11th Avenues. Uh, that was going to be the Olympic Stadium. Now, the, in order to do that, that was an open. It's an open rail yard. So Long Island rail cars are there, and if you go there, you see rail cars. You look down, there are rail cars. So, in order to build a stadium there, you have to put a concrete slab on top of the rail yards. Um, it's essentially six square blocks, and it costs four hundred million dollars. And then after you've got that slab there, you put a stadium up. It costs another billion dollars or whatever. And Jerry said, Jerry Schoenfeld said, you know, to me it seems like this is a waste of money, number one, and number two, it's really going to hurt Broadway because they're going to play the, after the Olympics was over, the 17 days of the Olympics, they were going to put the New York Jets there 10 games a year. But the, most of the games were Sunday afternoons. It would inter interfere with the matinees. So Jerry didn't like it. And he said, I want you to look into this whole project. And so I did. And I basically agreed with him in spades, plus some other things. I mean, my, my main thought was, my goodness, if you're going to put a concrete slab for $400 million in central Manhattan, um, overlooking the Hudson River, overlooking the, the Pacific Palace, excuse me, the, uh, uh, the New Jersey Palisades, um, that you could, you could find some better things to do with that land than build a stadium that's going to be used 10 times a year, or maybe 11 if Bruce Springsteen gives a concert there or whatever. Uh, but, you know, you really have, if you're mid-Manhattan, up on, it's, it's a higher part of Manhattan, overlooking the Hudson River, you've got some of the most valuable real estate in the whole world. And you're going to put a stadium there for the New York Jets? 
Uh, and so that, that kind of got me more interested in the subject. I started reading about it and reading about it. And I, then I got in, involved in a project um, probably around 2009 with a German economist and, and former gold medalist in the Olympics by, by the name of Wolfgang Manig. And he and I edited a book about sports mega events and their economic impact. Um, and then, um, it was about two, roughly two years ago, following a letter that the USOC had sent out to, that's the United States Olympic Committee, had sent out to 50 cities around the country saying, we're interested in, in putting forward a candidate to host the 2024 Summer Olympic Games. And um, would, would your city be interested in, in doing that? Would you like to enter into a, a domestic competition? And Boston got one of those letters, and nothing was happening in Boston until one day Mitt Romney went to, Romney was involved in the Salt Lake City Olympics right. in 2000. Um, and uh, he, he, go, he goes to Deval Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts, and says, uh, you guys ought to look into this. And Deval Patrick goes to the legislature and says, uh, would you appropriate a little bit of money so I can appoint a commission to look into the feasibility of doing this? Okay. Legislature appoints a little bit of money, and the, the guy who's now the head, of this, the, the head of the Massachusetts Senate, Stan Rosenberg, sends me an email. He says, I'd like to nominate you for this committee. Would you be interested? And I, I said, you know, sounds great. I'd love to do it. It would depend on the schedule and so on, but yes, please nominate me. Uh, he said, great, send me your last latest CV, and I did, and he sent my CV with a cover letter to, to Deval Patrick. And I, I said to Stan, by the way, there's an excellent person at Holy Cross who does this stuff and an excellent woman at Harvard who does this. You should put their names in too. So he did. And um, it, it turned out that Deval Patrick didn't appoint any of the three of us really? to the commission. And instead what he did is he appointed uh, primarily construction industry executives and some, some executives from the hospitality industry to look into this matter. And uh, I thought at that point that uh, that, was, that was really disappointing to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cynical by nature and pretty cynical about our political process in the United States. Um, but I thought that this was really going a step beyond what I would have expected of the governor. This was, this was, this was um, I think, good old-fashioned uh, old-boy network corruption stuff. And so I decided that it was uh, time to write a book about this, in general about the, the economics of, of hosting the, the Olympics and the World Cup. And that was the, the genesis of this book. Well, you, you certainly did write a very accessible book. So now we've come from 1990 Little League, discussion with your son. Um, I know Boston 2024 is the, is the group that's uh, promoting Boston's bid for that uh, Summer Olympics. But now we're at Circus Maximus. Again, an entirely accessible fascinating read about the economics um, of hosting Olympics in the World Cup. Tell me about the title, Circus Maximus. I know it's got some Roman connection. So Circus Maximus refers or is the name of the largest stadium in, in ancient Rome. It, it had a capacity, I believe, of 250,000 people, which was about one quarter of the population of Rome in those days. And they had chariot races and other events there. Um, and it's just something that stuck in my head. I think it's just a great this is great reference to uh, this ancient stadium. But I, as, as I thought about writing this book, it just that, that um, phrase came back to me as this is, this is what the modern Olympics and the modern World Cup is really about. It's the Circus Maximus in the old days of, uh, in, in the old days of referring to these gigantic stadiums and elaborate facilities. 
but it's also a circus maximus in the sense that it's a circus. It's a, you know, not a, not a three-ring circus, it's a 32-ring circus because there are 32 venues that you right. need to host the Olympics. Um, so it just seemed uh, serendipitously like the right title for the book. And um, I know somebody has to benefit from the Olympics, and you, you go uh, into great detail about the purported benefits that these hosting committees put together and these promotional packages, and they're going to say there'll be great tourism, there'll be economic development, there'll be increased trade, uh, there'll be all kinds of benefits. So who actually benefits from hosting these mega sporting events? So the people who benefit are the people who start the bids. So in Boston, um, the bid was started, started by a fellow by the name of John Fish, who's the CEO and chief uh, owner of Suffolk Construction, which is the largest construction company in the greater Boston area. Uh, he put together a bunch of uh, other executives from related industry, and um, they formed Boston 2024. And they went ahead and they made a bid to to the USOC without getting the approval or sanction or pat on the back or even a wink from the city council or the state legislature. They, in essence, appropriated the name Boston and they applied in the name of Boston. Uh, and, and, and by doing so, we're uh, encumbering Boston and the, and the state to a substantial amount of, of financial commitment, even though they said they weren't. So the people who benefit are first and foremost the construction industry executives and owners, uh, potentially construction trades, unions in that industry. Then there'll be some related industries that uh, might believe that they could benefit. So architectural firms uh, might, might jump on board. Investment bankers who, who are gonna float the bonds to finance this could benefit. Some law, law firms that work with the investment bankers, they could benefit from it. Uh, you could see an insurance company potentially in benef benefiting from it. Maybe some hospitality sector um, enterprises think they can benefit. They probably won't, but they think they could benefit. And so you form a coalition of these people, a small sector of the entire economy, uh, the ones who would be the main beneficiaries, and they form the committee and they push it forward. It happens in different ways in different cities in different countries, but that fundamentally is what's going on underneath all of the fanfare and hoopla about hosting the games. But what about uh, restaurateurs and the hot dog vendors on the streets and the public transportation managers and maybe tourism sites around the city and in the region? I mean, do, don't so people that's come and I spend said, money too? When I said hospitality sector, people think they might benefit. That's what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. The restaurateurs and the hotels and related, uh, related activities. I say they think they might benefit because in fact, they don't seem to. There are a few instances where they have benefited, but the primary experience, particularly in, in the last decade or more, has been that tourism actually goes down when you host the games. Normal tourism is displaced by, by sports fans' tourism. Why are they displaced? Because when you host the Olympics or the World Cup, hotel prices go up. Uh, because there's a lot of traffic congestion that people want to avoid, they say, let's take our vacation someplace that's not congested and high price, uh, because very often the, the streets of a town are uh, militarized and regimented as a result of security needs. And very often, excuse me, not very often, but sometimes people are concerned about security incidents happening. So why would you go visit Boston in 2024 
if you could visit New York or you could visit St. Louis or you could visit San Francisco, which isn't going to have those issues. Right. So that's what happens. That's, in, in fact, in London in 2012, the number of tourists went down 6.1% in August relative to 2011. In Beijing in 2008, it went down 30%. In Salt Lake City um, for the Winter Olympics in 2002, uh, ski, skier days went down 9%. So that's, that's largely what, what we're finding. And, and if, if, if that, in fact, is what happened, is what's happening, then the restaurants won't benefit. You know, go and interview a, a restaurateur in central, uh, central London near, near Piccadilly, or go, go and interview a theater manager in central London about how their business was in August of 2012, and they'll say it was awful. Uh, it, w it was like the Great Depression. Um, so, it, you know, there, there might be particular, particular hotels that benefit because they're charging higher prices and they fill up one way or the other. Um, that doesn't usually benefit the city because hotels have chains somewhere else and profits get repatriated back to, to the hotel chain headquarters. Um, it's, it's a very iffy proposition. The, the Olympics are known as, or the World Cup is known as something that promotes tourism in your country. There's very little evidence for it. Uh, there, the econometric studies that have been done don't show that either in the year of the game or, or going forward. Uh, in fact, the, the European trade operators, uh, tourism, excuse me, the European Tourism Operators Association has done a number of studies of the Olympics around the world. And what they've concluded is that the, the best way to promote tourism in a city is by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So that an individual travels to London, not in August of 2012, but some other time, they travel to London and they go home and they tell their friends, neighbors, and relatives, wow, the Tate Gallery is terrific. Wow, London theater is wonderful. Wow, they have good restaurants and they're, they're amenably priced, or whatever they tell them. Um, and, and then their friends, neighbors, and relatives say, I'll have to go to London someday. But if somebody goes to London in August of 2012 and they see a good, um, exciting swim medley, or they see an exciting 100-meter dash, or whatever they see, and they go home and tell their friends about the 100-meter dash, their friends can't go to London to watch that because it's not there anymore. Um, and so the word-of-mouth component of promoting tourism diminishes as a result of hosting these games. And, and hence, one might anticipate that uh, the, the, the net tourism effect is negative over time. You have this great bit in the book about the, uh, the World Cup in Brazil in 2014, where it, the, the cities, the host cities did have a large influx of so-called sports tourists, yeah. but there were a lot of them were from neighboring countries whose teams were in the game, and a lot of those people slept on the beach, and they hardly spent any money while they were there, and then the games were over and they went home. They, so people from Argentina and from Chile and from Colombia, countries that all had teams in the final 16, um, young, young adults would jump in vans and travel to a Brazilian city and, as you say, sleep on beaches, uh, shower in the showers at the beaches, or stay, stay at friends' houses, uh, buy, buy um, a, a hot dog or something during the day, spent virtually no money in Brazil. And, um, yeah, so you, if you add up, in fact, if you do add up the number of tourists who were in Brazil in the summer of 2014, it actually goes up. But the amount of tourism spending that happened in Brazil in 2014 did not go up. One of the things I really enjoyed about reading the book is that you very diligently identify a supposed claim and you walk through the 
econometric arguments against the claim. And it's, it's a really fascinating look, but you, you do it in short term. We've been talking about some short term benefits. What about the long term benefits that are touted for hosting these mega events? Um, national pride, long term tourism, uh, infrastructure. We're going to build all this infrastructure that will benefit everybody. Some even claim that hosting these games and the preparations for these kinds of sporting events will diminish inequality in a place. Can you talk about some of those issues? Oh, diminish inequality. Uh, well, why don't I start there? I, I, I think the evidence is much more forcefully on the side of increasing inequality. Uh, what has happened time and time again is that the, the supply of public housing in host cities goes down because they very often, the public housing is the first thing to go when they need land for stadiums or it's the first thing to go when they're worried about the, the optics of a stadium near a public housing project. And they don't like the optics of having low-income people living near the stadiums. Um, so public housing goes. And sometimes there's a plan to replace it with more public housing, but that needs additional funding, and most cities are broke after they've hosted these games. Uh, so there isn't money around to create, to create the public housing. Um, what other benefits are put forward? The, the idea that you... Um, the idea that you attract new foreign investment, or the idea that you attract new trade internationally, there's no economic evidence to that, to that effect. And in fact, if you think about it, think about it, you ask the question, why, why does a, a company that invests internationally, why do they invest in country X or in country Y or in city X or in city Y? Why do you do that? Why do you locate in one place rather than another? Well, any company that is a successful company locates in an area for a number of reasons. Number one, they want, a, they want availability of a necess the necessary skilled labor force uh, that they need for their production. And number two, they want the labor force to be reasonably priced. Number three, they, they want to be close to their markets if they can, and they want to be close to their suppliers if they can. Number four, they want fiscal incentives. They want tax breaks, so they want other kinds of breaks that will make their operation more profitable. Uh, they don't invest in a country because it's recently hosted the World Cup or because it's recently hosted the Olympics. A company that moved around the world in order to do that would go broke very quickly. Um, so the whole notion that, that this is some kind of a, a wonderful tool, a recently discovered tool of economic development because it promotes investment, doesn't make logical sense and it, it has no empirical foundation. Um, Another thing that they often claim is that it increases the culture of exercise. That right. if, if, you, if you host the Olympics, then all of a sudden people will see the, the, the glorious outcome of, of training and, 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 and doing rigorous exercise. London made that claim. London made the claim, and the, the data says no. In fact, the number of people who exercised in London and England for 30 minutes or more went down the year of the Olympics, and it went down this, the year after. The Olympics in London. Uh, and, and in fact, the House of Commons did a study. When London was applying for the Games, they did a study about the effect on exercise. And they found in their study, almost verbatim, that there is no evidence in any country that's hosted the Games that there's been an increase in the exercise culture of, of the population. Well, a lot of U.S. supporters of hosting the Games will point to uh, operating surpluses in, say, the Los Angeles Games, the Atlanta Games, the Salt Lake City Games as a justification to say, well, look, when a U.S. city hosts, when Boston hosts in 2024, uh, U.S. cities don't lose money. Is, is that a fair argument? So um, it's, it's important to distinguish uh, among various factors that, that go into the budgeting 
of the Olympics. I think you, you should think in terms of three bins of, of finance. Bin number one is the operational costs of the 17 days of the games. How much does it cost to put these games on? How much does it cost in terms of police presence? How much does it cost in terms of uh, preparing the facilities and preparing the, the, the roads and all of those things? Uh, and they also, by the way, a host country has to do, for the Olympics, they have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, excuse me, on the opening and the closing ceremonies. So there are lots of operating costs. Then there's a, the cost of building the venues that are used for the competitions. And then there's the related infrastructure cost. When you hear somebody tell you that the Atlanta games had a surplus, which they didn't, they broke even, by the way. Uh, Los Angeles had a surplus of $215 million in 1984. But when you hear somebody tell you that there was a surplus, they're referring only to the operating budget. And the operating budget is smaller than either the venue budget or the infrastructure budget. So it's almost irrelevant whether you break even on the operating budget or not. Sochi, Russia, broke even, actually they had a surplus in their operating budget. But they spent, they spent somewhere between 50 and 70 billion dollars on the venues and the infrastructure. Uh, nobody in his, in his or her right mind would say that this was an economically sensible thing for, for Putin to be investing in. And in fact, the reason why they had an operating surplus is that Putin had the Treasury transfer the Sochi Organizing Committee uh, tens of millions of dollars. And so they are, it was completely artificial operating surplus anyway. I, I commend to uh, listeners' attention that in the book you talk a lot about the Sochi uh, Olympics. You also, you kind of compare that to the Barcelona Games. Why did you make the comparison between Barcelona and Sochi? Well, because in my mind those are the examples on either end of the spectrum. Uh, Sochi, if I had to pick one Olympics that I thought was the most wasteful, and the most destructive economically, I would pick Sochi. Although they have, it has good competition from some other, some other cities and countries. And if I had to pick one country that, or excuse me, one city that I felt was the most successful uh, in hosting the Olympics, I'd pick Barcelona. And that was in 1992. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and the Barcelona story is is pretty simple. After Franco died in 1975. The Franco period had been characterized by a lot of, a lot of neglect of the Catalan region. Uh, it also been characterized by helter-skelter industrialization in, within Barcelona. So there's a manufacturing sector that sprung up and a warehousing sector that sprung up that separated the downtown streets of the city from the Mediterranean Sea. And they had, in the 70s, they started talking about how they wanted to re-envision their city. And one of the major things they wanted to do was to move the manufacturing and warehousing so that the city would have an openness to the sea again. Uh, and so that was a plan, along with some other elements, was a plan that was generated in the late 70s and early 80s before anybody thought about hosting the Olympics. When they finally hosted the Olympics, they rolled the Olympics or shoehorned shoehorn the Olympics into their plan that already existed. That reverses the typical sequence that I know from every other city, which is that the city doesn't have a particular plan, or if it does, it doesn't have an, a coherent, integrated plan. Uh, and the Olympics or the IOC, the FIFA or the IOC comes along and says, here are our requirements, this is what you need to do to your city. Um, and, then, and then the city has to contort itself to accommodate somebody else's plan. So Barcelona reversed that sequence. They had their plan where we were able to make the Olympics work for their plan. That along with the fact that this was an undiscovered jewel of a, of a, of a city. Great climate, great location, wonderful architecture, fascinating culture.
this was this was a city that people would want to discover. The Olympics helped put it a little bit on the map. That's a phrase you hear all the time. Uh, I think it actually worked for Barcelona. Other things that were happening is Spain joined the com European common market, so there's more integration with the rest of Europe. European airlines were deregulated, so plane travel uh, became much, much cheaper. Uh, Brazil, uh, Bar Barcelona also created a very aggressive and thoughtful and successful tourism hub where they, they had a very specific plan for promotion and advertising in Europe. So they did all of those things, and they all happened together, together with the Olympics. So, and I think when you put all of that together, it actually worked. The, the, the Olympic growth theory actually worked. I can't really identify another example of that. So that's, that's what Barcelona and Sochi are doing in the same chapter, Pol okay. polar opposites. And, and nobody is going really to Sochi for, for a summer vacation. They're all going to many other places that they can go to. Well, so some Russians go to Sochi. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a long-standing place where members of the Politburo and the, the, the upper echelons of, of the government, uh, and, and these days uh, oligarchs, industrial magnates, uh, they go for, to their dachas there in the summertime. But they always went there. If anything, um, Sochi as a retreat, as kind of a bucolic, isolated, beautiful retreat on the Black Sea, has lost some of that charm. And so some of that traditional summer tourism might decline. There's also been more pollution in the Black Sea. Uh, Sochi, as a, which is what they said they wanted to do, was to turn it into a 12-month resort, mostly because of skiing, doesn't work. It doesn't work. The, the mountains, are, the, it's too warm. The climate is too warm. Uh, they needed to make uh, tons and tons and tons of artificial snow to be able to hold the, 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 winter, the winter events there. They were having 60-degree, 70-degree days. On the slopes themselves, yeah. not just downtown in Sochi, yeah. which is on the water, but if you, you, went, you went 30 minutes or 30 miles up into the mountains, on the slopes themselves, they were having 60- and 70-degree days. Let's stick with the Winter Olympics for a minute. The, the 2018 games are scheduled to be in Pyeongchang, South Korea. The 2022 games have not been decided yet, but there are only two bid cities. Um, Almaty. Almaty in Kazakhstan and Beijing, China. Now, Oslo, Norway recently dropped out, I think largely due to pressure from its own citizens who did not support spending right. public monies to, right. uh, to host the Olympics. Now, a Dutch government uh, commission report suggested that maybe in the future the Olympic Games can only be hosted by autocratic regimes. What do you make of that? Well, I think if it, if it kept going in the direction it was going, then that certainly would have been the case. Uh, fortunately for the IOC, they elected a new leader, a new president, in September of 2013 by the name of Thomas Bach, and he saw the train wreck coming. Um, he, he saw it in spades, and he spent the first several months of his time in office, and he continues to do it to this day, traveling around the world, uh, talking to industrialists, talking to political leaders, and telling them how much the IOC would love to see an application from their city to host the Olympic Games and, 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 and how the IOC would, would look favorably on their city because the city had this characteristic and that characteristic and this characteristic. Uh, so he went all around the globe doing that and he continues to do it to this day. So he's trying to beef up the, uh, the interest in hosting. But at the same time he did that, he's had a very large public relations effort uh, that resulted in December of 2014 at the IOC Congress in passing something called Agenda 2020 which uh, highlights and heralds the importance of sustainability and frugality and flexibility. 
and he says that this, these are our new virtues, our new values, our new commitments, and so it's not going to be so expensive anymore, and we're going to be more responsible ecologically. That's what he, that's what he says. And that's basically, so far, all it is is a bunch of words. It turns out that the IOC has said that before. The IOC has waved the banner of sustainability and waved the banner of fighting gigantism before, uh, and essentially they've done nothing because what's taken over is the fundamental economics of monopoly where you have one organization, IOC or FIFA, going out to the world and saying, okay, you guys, fight amongst yourselves. Convince me you're the most worthy to be anointed as the next. So you have all these cities around the world or countries competing with each other in one cellar. Um, and it, uh, it, it creates a dynamic of, of tremendous leverage on the, on the part of IOC and FIFA. And so whatever phrases or nice words that they come up with, at least to date, we haven't seen any evidence that it's gonna make much of a difference. So given the clear evidence, uh, and, and you, you put it in this book so well, given the clear evidence that's out there about the, uh, the costs of hosting these mega sporting events, why do you think cities around the world continue to fall all over themselves to put forth expensive bids and to try to, to get these, uh, these mega sporting events? In so an implicit, an implicit premise in your question is, is that the politicians who endorse these decisions are acting in the best interests of, of the people whom they represent. And I think that as often as not, that's not true. Uh, but more to the point, I think really uh, two things. First of all, as you just noted, there has been a dwindling interest on the part of cities and countries to host these events uh, and that the IOC is beginning to address. We'll see what happens with FIFA down the road. Um, so even beyond that, as we said at the outset, what you have in each of these cities or countries is a, a reduced sector of the economy, starting with the hub of construction and radiating, radiating, radiating out a little bit uh, of people and companies that will benefit if the country or the city hosts. Particularly in, in an urban political economy, construction in, interests are extraordinarily powerful. Uh, people said, in Boston that John Fish, the old head of Boston 2024 and the, the main owner of Suffolk Construction, they used to say that he was the most powerful person in Boston. So politicians listen to people like that. Um, and so whether, whether or not it's, it's in the interest of the commonweal, it's in the interest of the entire city or the in, entire country, becomes secondary to very strong lobbying efforts from very powerful and well-connected people. Now, uh, we're talking about uh, the economics behind the Olympics and the World Cup. I can't let you get away from this interview without asking you about the FIFA scandal, okay. uh, which we recently saw. It took down a lot of high-ranking officials, including the president, Seth Blatter. Um, do you think this will engender reforms in the FIFA host bidding process for the better? And uh, do you think it will reopen the cases of Russia's uh, hosting in 2018 and Qatar's hosting in 2022? Well, if I had to bet, I would say that uh, this is the first step in a process of reform and that FIFA will move forward. And it, it, uh, if, if all of that does come to pass, there are a number of things that they need to do. They need to have term limits on their executives. They need to change their voting system for how you elect the president of FIFA, because the way it is right now, Montserrat of 40,000 people gets the same number of votes as the United States of 320 million people. Uh, there should be a voting system that is based upon or proportional to the number of soccer players that you have in the country. 
Um, so they need to change that. Uh, they, they need to have an independent oversight board that, uh, that sanctions uh, various major decisions that the organization takes and does periodic evaluations of the organization. They need to have more than two women on the executive committee. There should be women all over, um, all over the administration of FIFA. So there are a, a range of things that can be done and should be done. And I'm hopeful, I think the most probable scenario going forward is that they'll start to be done. It's going to take some time to do that. There are darker scenarios. Uh, one darker scenario is that uh, Blatter spends his next several months, because there's apparently not going to be an election until December or January, spends the next several months machinating and scheming and making it possible for his guys to uh, continue to control FIFA. And they could do for Blatter what Blatter did to Zhao Havelange, the previous president, also very corrupt. Uh, he made Havelange the honorary emeritus president and gave him a lovely, a lovely pack, package of salary and perquisites. Um, and, and, and Blatter can still be in eminence grise helping uh, or manipulating decisions. So that's a darker scenario. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's all that likely. There's still another scenario, which is that Blatter doesn't get to hang around until December or January, that U.S. justice goes after him, uh, which they seem to be doing, but they're accumulating hard evidence, uh, and they successfully indict him. And I think at that point he gets removed and taken out of, out of play altogether. Um, I, I think that that's likely. That would lead towards this path of reform that I was talking about. And it's what I look forward to have uh, to happening in, in, in the coming months. And any thoughts on Russia and Qatar's? So it's very hard to, it's going to be very hard to unwind that. Uh, Russia's most of the way into the, the building and the infrastructure that they need to do. Uh, Putin's economy is, is an abs absolutely in shambles. And it's, it's cost them a lot to do what they've done. Um, Qatar is not as far along, uh, although they've started, apparently started work on five different stadiums. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,300 workers have died working on those stadiums. Um, if FIFA tries to unwind those decisions, uh, there are going to be all sorts of nasty legal fights, and it's going to be expensive, and it's going to be ugly. Uh, whether or not FIFA would, would have the guts to do that, whether or not even be sensible to, to pick that fight at this point, I'm not sure. I mean, on some visceral level, nothing would please me more than to see a relocation of the 2018 uh, World Cup to England. They're the ones who should have been awarded and would have been awarded without the vote buying. And to have the 2022 World Cup come to the United States, we should have gotten that and we would have gotten it. Um, so I would like to see those things happen. But whether it's sensible for FIFA to do that rather than to concentrate on, on reorganizing itself internally and reforming itself, I'm not sure. So, um, so the, the reforms you've talked about with FIFA and with the IOC and the Olympic movement, I know are in this book, this wonderful book. Um, so I commend it to everyone listening. Uh, I hope it gets, and I'm sure it's getting broad readership because uh, I think it's a very important book. And again, it's a very readable book. It's a fun book. So I, I thank you, uh, and I thank you for your time today, Professor Zimbalist. Well, you can't see me, but I'm blushing. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Andrew Zimbalist and his research at smith.edu and find out more about his new book on our website, brookings.edu slash circusmaximus. My thanks to my producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin. Also, thanks to Rebecca Campany for helping me put this interview together. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu.